0: hello sweet dorks we are new to who whether you don't know the old and only the new we are the chaps with suggestions for you i'm dan i'm Stephen.
1: and i'm dave welcome
2: dave Got dave kitchen from the doctor who show on this time dave tell us a bit about yourself how you got into doctor who and maybe a little bit about the podcast that you're involved with at the moment
1: well, I'm not sure what you want to know about me, except that I'm a Doctor Who fan. Uh, from Melbourne, of course, so we're recording this in none of our hometowns, no. which is kind of weird.
2: It's true. We're in Sydney at the moment, sweet dorks.
1: But I'm a second generation Doctor Who fan. I literally discovered the show on my father's knee. He wow. He grew up in England and actually saw the first episode go out. Oh, wow. And he was lucky enough to see seasons four and five in the UK migrate to Australia and then see them again when they got oh, to Australia.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> a repeat wonderful. before they were repeats.
1: It was. So, yeah, look, very much grew up watching them with him. Then, you know, discovered Fandom as well. We used to read the Target books together. Mm-hmm. And since then I went on. I joined Fandom in Melbourne back when I was uh, much younger and was very involved in the Doctor Who Club of Victoria for a couple of couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, second time I was president over during the 50th anniversary, which was kind of cool. Sure.
2: We'll call you Lord President from now on. F- uh, <laughs> former president. Former president. <laughs>
1: Uh, But got involved in podcasting via a couple of friends of mine, Rob and Mark, who do, or did I should say now, 42 to Doomsday. They had their own podcast and occasionally invited myself and a friend of mine, Richard, on. And after that, I was asked to join the Doctor Who show as a regular contributor or as a a co-host with Rob, Mm. who I believe has already um, appeared on your podcast.
0: Yes, (laughs) back when we did Enlightenment, way back yeah, well, backwards in time podcast-wise, but forward in time for us. So, we haven't done it yet, but it's we timey-wimey. It is timey-wimey. <laughs> and so you, and so you said that you, you told us before earlier that your dad you got into it with your dad and he he would buy novelizations. That's yeah, so that's sweet. right.
1: So, he used to come home from work with the latest Target novelization. Uh, he had a lot of the classic series that was repeated on Australian TV on VHS, so we just had this cupboard full of oh. VHSs of the Pertwee years and the Tom <laughs> Baker years. And gold dust. Yeah, it was it was it was really great. And um, look, one of my fondest memories as a fan was when the enemy of the world was discovered, and I was at work, as many of us were in Australia when it came out. And mm-hmm. I downloaded it, and I got to ring him and say, "Hey, I've got the enemy of the world on my computer. Do you want me to come over and?" Yeah, try? Oh, that's beautiful. And, and just watching him watch that in the web of fear, and yeah. suddenly he was a fifteen-year-old again. Oh, and yeah, and it was that was a really cool moment. Oh, for that me. is Dave, beautiful. That's so nice. <laughs> I love that.
2: And Dave, I guess you're renowned as a, a, a massive Hartnell fan, and I guess it's a little bit different, isn't it? Because like most people will have their doctors that they sure. saw either the first one on the ABC, like you the, and
0: I. It's usually the first one,
2: isn't it? Yeah, I think so. But you, you consciously made the choice that Hartnell was your doctor later on in life, you say.
1: Yeah, look, growing up, Pertwee was my doctor, and I think for exactly the reasons you said. It was the one that was always on on TV, yep. it was the one that discovered when I young. And I'm still a huge fan of the Pertwee era, and a lot mm. of my favourite stories are Pertwee stories. But... Over time, I suddenly realised the ones that I was going back to and really getting involved with were the Hartnell ones, and suddenly I realised without noticing that he'd become my favourite Doctor. It's kind of like when you discover that George is actually your favourite Beatle.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I just want to dig a bit deeper here because there must have been something about the character of the first Doctor, a character that, by the way, I think has largely been lost in the mists of time, whether that's Mm. missing episodes or the fact that it is another era altogether... There are episodes that obviously uh, have survived the test of time, but I think I think it's a it's a misunderstood era. It's one that isn't as
0: popular, perhaps, as it should be. Well, it's harder to relate to a little bit for... It's 50-plus years ago, people, I guess, yeah. Well, that's as well, I
1: suppose. I love the spirit both of the character and of the era. There's a real sense of science fiction on the frontier. Mm-hmm. There's a real sense of genuinely just going out and exploring, both in what you can do as a TV show but also the Doctor going out and just exploring worlds. He, he as the character in the, those years, knows nothing. Yeah. So when he meets the Daleks for the first time, he's just, what What are these things? I don't know. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about the first time he meets the Cyberman, and it's all new. Yeah. Uh, he would go to new worlds and discover them, and there's these wonderful, weird things you could only create in the 60s, <laughs> these worlds you could only do in the 1960s when there were no rules, nobody cared. But also, I love the historicals, and if anything... It's the pure historicals that have really become a passion for me. Sure. Interesting. Um, I, I just absolutely adore them. History has become my passion, I think, off the back of watching the Hartnell era. I can remember reading wow. the Marco Polo novelisation, for example, when I was 10. John
2: Luke
0: Arati.
1: Yeah, and just, just thinking, I need to know more about this Marco Polo.
0: <laughs> so it spurred you on to read about history. In- it, it,
1: it really did. And look, even earlier this year, I was in the city of Jaffa. And all I could think about was, hey, this is where the Crusades was yeah, set, yeah, and here I yeah. am. <laughs> wow. So, that's yeah, it, it really has ignited um, a passion for me. And that that love of history, particularly, came out of the heart and lira, But I love, he, he's hes such an interesting character. Like, he's so authoritative, but also so fun. Mm. And I think that's what a lot of people forget, is just how funny he is.
0: Mm. I agree. And he yeah. can be sweet. The sweeter moments just, like, sort of balance out the bits where he's tetchy or... Authoritative,
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's some wonderful stuff in there, if you want to discover William Hartnell. Hmm. There's some wonderful little stories, something like The Rescue, which is only two parts, and you could never make a story like that today because it's very, very character-driven. But Hmm. it's just such a wonderful piece of character television Hmm. that I really, really enjoy.
0: So we're thrilled to have you, uh, as a Hartnell fan, to talk about The Tenth Planet. (laughs) I'm thrilled
1: to be here. It's a favourite of mine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. That's great. So we've chosen it for a number of reasons, Dan,
2: and uh, we, we think back to, I guess some of the initial reasons for of why we wanted to do this podcast, yeah. which was to sort of highlight some of the firsts in Doctor Who. Mm. And, you know, I think we've done that throughout a number of episodes. And this is obviously, as mentioned before by Dave, the first Cyberman story, but it's also the first regeneration story.
1: Mm. I could remember when I was really, really young and we didn't know much about Doctor Who and the history and all the rest of that, and having the really basic, like, episode guides, like the 20th anniversary magazine uh-huh. that had a sentence on every story or <laughs> <laughs> the... Um, the Doctor Who Technical Manual, which had a few photos from the 60s. I remember. And as a kid, you'd go, hey, this is the first Cyberman story ever. And the Doctor regenerates. This must be massive. Yeah. <laughs> and you just really want to see it.
2: Yeah. I'm so glad that uh, it was a few years ago now, but um, The Missing Part 4 was animated. Mm. And I guess what we have now is a, a, a watchable version from Episode 1 all the way through to Episode 4. Yeah. Um, previously, obviously, episode four had been lost. Um, but yeah, it's it's wonderful that we're able to, to see that in a slightly altered form, but nonetheless in its complete complete form as um, as a story.
1: It is, and we at least have the audio as well. And so much, I think, particularly of Hartnell's performance lives through his voice. Mm. So you do, compared to somebody like Troughton, who I think when you lose the video, oh. you lose so much of him. Absolutely. With Hartnell, so much of it is the voice and the presence. So... You kind of can appreciate his performance through the audio
2: and the verbal ticks as well that he has. I don't yeah. know whether they're natural to the to the actor himself or, or whether he's put them on for the character. But it's so Doctorish, um, and we see sort of impersonations of Hartnell or things coming through in later Doctors as well. Um, but he he very much embodies that character, doesn't he? As the Doctor, I think.
1: I, I agree, and I think if ever you want to appreciate what a performance it is listen to the audio of The Massacre where he plays another role, the Abbot of Amboise. Ah. And that is so different to the first Doctor <laughs> yeah. that you realise yeah, just how much of that performance was a performance.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he's definitely a favourite of mine. I've got a bit of a story to tell later on about how Hartnell was, uh, was, was one of my favourite Doctors sure. growing up as a kid. But maybe we should go on to the TARDIS team uh, having talked about William Hartnell. Um, the first Doctor, we've got... Um, I guess, as you say, an authoritarian figure, one who's also a bit of yeah. a, uh, a cuddly teddy bear at times. He's very grandfatherly. He's a grandfather, yeah. Here he is, I guess, with, with two newish companions that he's only really sort of met um, a couple of stories ago on in what was then modern-day um, London in The War Machines, which is a bit of a favourite of mine as well. <laughs> but it's, it's Polly and Ben played by Anika Wills and, and Michael Craze. What, what, what can we say about these two?
1: I think that this was the first real attempt by the production team to do the hip contemporary character. Yeah. They'd done contemporary before, Ian and Barbara, but they weren't hip. Yeah. They're great characters. Like, I love them to death. But this was the real, like... Hey, let's get somebody who's in touch with the kids. Yeah, <laughs> someone
0: contemporary. Yeah, you know, and you know, they go time.
1: to nightclubs and they talk cockney. And yeah.
2: <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Because Polly's very much like represented as as a bit of a, a dolly bird. The Duchess is what uh, Ben oh, nicknames her. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> it can be a bit patronising, but she's nonetheless a sixties it girl, isn't yeah, she? Sure. Kind of like we saw earlier with the invasion this year with uh, Sally Faulkner as Isabel Watkins. Sure. She embodies that period of time and. It's it's very much London, maybe not quite as it's swinging, but just as it's about to start swinging, isn't it? Because it's 1966 that the Doctor meets these two.
1: It, it is, so we're just before the Summer of Love, yeah. but things are really gearing up.
2: Yeah, and opposite her, the rather more straight-laced uh, Royal Navy um, able sailor... Seaman. able Seaman. Um, it, it's Seaman. Um, it's Benjamin Jackson, or just Ben for
1: short. What's he like? He's... I think the first real working class character in Doctor Who. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think the others are very middle class. They're teachers or they're astronauts. Ben is just your classic working class kid. Probably dropped out of school at the end of, you know, year 10. Yeah, Straight into the Navy. Straight into the Navy. Off for a life of adventure. Yeah. Really straightforward bloke just yeah and, and again the sort of guy you could imagine bumping into actually in a nightclub in 1966
0: yeah London. it's true isn't it he can be physical uh and he yeah he provides the, the the muscle i suppose yeah. sometimes and he's also just cockneying up as hard as he can i
2: love that yeah. i mean this is a guy you you said dave that you can you could probably meet him in a nightclub i reckon you could probably meet him on the football terraces as well supporting yes. west ham or, or tottenham or something <laughs> like that you know a real salt of the earth character simple lad but like honest as the days long
1: yeah, and completely loyal to the Doctor, yeah. and, and we'll see it as we explore this story. I'm sure that moral side of him as well. There's a, yeah. there's a real streak of, uh, you know, what's good and what's right that comes through in him.
2: And as a TARDIS team, the fact that you have this sort of, well, Hartnell at this stage has sort of been, uh, I guess, um, removed from his original TARDIS teams, the ones that he felt comfortable with. But I still think it's a beautiful juxtaposition between this, you know, grandfatherly old old man. And two, you know, swinging cats from, from mid-60s London
1: It is, and the way that they just admire him and respect him so much yeah. It's really, it kind of feels very old school now mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does, it does a feel bit.
0: a little dated, but in a, in a good way
2: In a like, yeah. sort of a comfortable way Yeah I, I wish in a way that we got to see just a few more episodes of this Tartars team mm-hmm. I, I just think that dynamic really works for me yeah, They weren't around for very long No, three stories and then we had Troughton mm.
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it
2: uh, so let's have a look at behind the scenes, because there's a lot going on at this point And in a moment, we'll uh, talk about, I suppose, the, the greatest change of all, which is the change of the lead hmm. from um, Hartnell through to Troughton. But the producer on this uh, is Innes Lloyd. What do you think his lasting legacy, Dave, is to Doctor Who as a program?
1: I think Innes Lloyd will always be remembered as the guy that gave us the monster season, which is coming up in the middle of the Troughton era. Yep. And Season five. Season five. It's a wonderful, wonderful season. <laughs> and it's just... Look, we see the the, the start of it in The Tenth Planet, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. Yes. But, yeah, he really gave us that Monster of the Week, Face Under Siege, just pop sci-fi stuff. I think that's his legacy for sure. Is he the
0: one who came up with the idea of the regeneration, or is he instrumental in its...?
1: Well, he was the producer at the time, so he was in the room.
0: So
2: I, I think it's one of those real questions for history. I mean, obviously they knew that Hartnell wasn't a well man for a long time prior to this, and it was actually health reasons that ultimately forced him from the show.
1: It depends who you believe. Really? Uh, I think that there is certainly some truth that he was unwell. Mm -hmm. It's also, I think, true that like Tom Baker would become at the end of his run, by this stage Hartnell has uh, outlived on the show every member of the production team, every member of the cast. And this is his show now, and he's kind of bigger than (laughs) Ben-Hur. He knows it all. He's crotchety. So I think there was a sense of look, you're unwell, maybe it's time we moved you on. I'm fine. No, no, I think it's time we moved you on. Right, yeah,
2: okay. So you think it very much wasn't his choice to go?
1: The rumour is that John Wiles and he didn't get on and Hartnell said, it's him or me, and the BBC said, okay, yeah. we'll keep you. And then when Innis Lloyd came on and had the same problems, they've gone, look, we can't just keep sacking producers. Maybe <laughs> maybe the problem is you. And I say that as a guy who loves Hartnell, but I think that there were some genuine tensions on set by the time he left.
2: Yeah. And I guess, I mean, at this point also behind the scenes, we've got our script editor who's uh Jerry Davis. This guy casts a long shadow, I think, over 60s Doctor Who.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He is the one who hires Kit Pedler, who I'm sure we're about to discuss as the scientific advisor. (laughs) And so he again Is trying to bring a bit more science fiction into the show. It's him with Innes Lloyd that jettisons the historicals completely from the show. I mean, we've got one more coming up after this story, then there's no more historicals until the 80s. Pure historicals anyway. So they really turn it more to the science. They turn it more to the monster of the week. And that, I think, basically sets up the show for at least another 10, if not 15 years. Really, I guess, until John Nathan Turner comes aboard in the 80s. Yeah. It kind of sets up that, that vibe.
2: Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And we mentioned Kit Pedler, So so this is a chap who led a very interesting life. <laughs> <laughs> had, <laughs> but had some interesting ideas? Had some interesting ideas and very much was an ideas man. So he, supposedly uh, a co-credited writer with Jerry Davis. I'm, I tend to think that Jerry Davis probably wrote the most of this. But Kit Pedler. I mean, you mentioned he's a scientific advisor. Here he is sort of bringing the idea, I guess, of cybernetics and advancements in tech- medical technology into the show and results, I suppose, in one of the most endearing or enduring uh, monsters, the Cybermen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Not only does he help to develop the Cybermen, and he he's credited it as either a co-writer or based on the idea yeah, by, yeah. for a number of the Cybermen stories <laughs> through the 60s. <laughs>
2: Uh, and our director, Derek Martinez, who he's done some classic stories, hasn't he? We've, we're talking about things like Evil of the Daleks, which actually doesn't exist anymore, yeah. but is like one of those totemic 1960s stories. And one of my absolute favorites, Spearhead from Space, to to start the third Doctor off.
1: Yeah, I was looking at Derek Martinez's credits when I was prepping for this as well, adding to that The Ice Warriors, adding to yeah. that Mission of oh, the Unknown. Of course. Yes. This is just a collection of classics, but Spearhead from Space, I think... Most classic fans would agree. If there's a Doctor Who story that you could just put on a cinema screen and watch as a movie, yeah. yep. it's that. But it's yep. also
0: so important, like just such a pivotal point.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, he he gets tasked with directing Hartnell's finale, mm-hmm. his first story. Uh, he does the big Dalek epic in the Troughton era. Yeah. He does the big introduction of the Ice Warriors. He has some big stuff and. I think it's only because he stopped doing directorial work in 1970 that we don't really remember him I, th- I think in you're the right. same way as some others.
0: I think you're right. So he's a heavy hitter that they trust yeah, with the big stuff. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. So, Steve, if you were going to sum up this story in a dazzlingly eloquent single sentence, what would that be? Well,
2: it wouldn't be this. In the polar wastes of Antarctica, a frail and aged doctor nearing the end of his life, his first life, encounters an incredibly strong and powerful race of mechanoid creatures that he will meet many times again in the future. But will the Doctor... The original, you might say, survived this particular adventure. (laughs) Lovely. (laughs) Lance, what's that off in the distance there? Just there seems to be a snowstorm coming through.
0: It's it's coming pretty quick.
2: Yeah, just those figures, they're huge. What are
0: they? I think we're about to find out because we are heading into the spoiler snowstorm. (laughs) Hold tight. Here we go. So...
1: What we have here is the first appearance of the Cybermen. This is a monster that is generally regarded, I think rightly, as being second only to the Daleks. They are brought on here not necessarily as a replacement for the Daleks, but very quickly the potential of them is seen by the production team and with terry nation being a little bit difficult about the use of the daleks <laughs> they start to go well if we can't use them maybe we can build these cybermen up as a adversary and and you see it right through into the modern series when russell t davies takes on the new series the first big monster he brings back yep the daleks number two they're the cybermen yeah. sure. they're the big reveal for series two of the new series but what we have here is something very different to what we come to know as the cybermen now that first appearance at the end of part one, they walk out of the snow, mm. big, imposing, kinda of look like robots from a distance, yeah. they club down a couple of guards, and then you have this close up of them, and you see they've got human hands. Yes. Oh yes. So and then good. you pan up, you pan up, and the face is like it's not a robot's face. Mm. It's a it looks like a man behind a cloth and yes. it's got all this tech around him and it's just the weirdest thing and it's so wonderful.
2: I think it's fantastic because it really speaks to the true horror of the cyber in my mind, which is the body horror. These are people who have engineered themselves to a point where they can prolong their life through medical technology. Mm. And initially what we're seeing here, I suppose, is the rudimentary form of that. They haven't quite perfected it yet. They haven't turned themselves into robots in the way that we see. I guess particularly in that Earthshock episode that sure. we looked at where they really do look like um Um, Techie, techie robot, silver shining Instead, here instead, what we have Are are essentially, you know, cadavers Wrapped in bandages Mm. Held together by bits of technology And string, and it's just god-awful So much so, of course And we'll talk about this later on That it comes back in this form In uh, Series 10 with Capaldi Yeah,
1: It it is incredibly memorable But you do generally believe With the Cybermen That yeah, they are people Or Mm. former people that have had the surgery and become yeah. you know cybernetic but there's still human bits there. Yeah. But they also talk about how they've had certain emotions removed from their brain. And so we see that in some wonderful exchanges particularly with the doctor in part 2. Yeah. Where they are completely indifferent to the lives of the astronauts that are in danger. The doctor asks them about you know that that famous love it's pride so hate fear mm. speech.
3: Emotions, love,
1: pride, hate, fear. Have you no emotions, sir? Yeah. Beautiful. It's it's a wonderful moment. But at the same time, with these Cybermen, you still get this idea that there's a human inside them. They're, yes. they're a little bit glib, yeah. And a little bit spug. Like there's one point where a Cyberman turns around to General Cutler, and he almost sighs and goes, "You should not have done that." Yeah.
2: <laughs> this is when he alerts uh, Space Control. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and and you feel like okay, yeah, there's still there's still a human brain underneath that.
2: I love that they have names. Yeah. So we have Krang as the leader, uh, Jarl and Gern. Is it? And it's just one of those things where it's like, oh my god, they never did this again. And it's probably right because it doesn't quite suit the S- Cybermen of later stories. But for these ones, because these are essentially dead humans
0: wrapped yeah. in, in bandages and and plastic, I think it actually adds to the chilling factor of them. This is, these Cybermen are for me like they really they really sum up. What I love about classic series Cybermen is that they're not robots. They're, mm-hmm. they're people who have gradually over time replaced themselves with technology uh, to the point where they're no longer really human and they've taken out one of the things that makes them human, which is their emotions. And it's one of the things, uh, I, I love the, the new series Cybermen, sure, but it's one of the things that I'm missing from the new series Cybermen. They're a bit more robotic, a little bit more like automatons, and they don't have that sadness about them that I always feel with Cybermen, mm. is that they've lost something. And they're a cautionary tale. I think I've said it before. They're kind of a cautionary tale. And i um, in the '60s. I suppose it's sort of like the dawn of the computer age. Technology is starting to move at a pace where people, especially older people, can't keep up, and they're, it's uh, something they're afraid of. Mm-hmm. And now it's—I think it's even more relevant now, seeing as we're carrying this kind of space age tech in our pockets everywhere. And yeah. people, some people, uh, you know, people can get obsessed with it, and it, you know, it's just sort of like a fits really well. And that's why I just love these Cybermen really nail it home because as you said, rather than becoming sort of like the metallic, shiny, hard, robotic Cybermen uh, of uh, the latest seasons, they're, they're really recognisable as, as men or former men.
1: And, and what you see here is the Cybermen genuinely believe that they are better off. Yeah. And so when they talk about taking the Doctor and his crew and the others at the polar base back mm-hmm. to Mondas and converting them into Cybermen, they're not doing it like the later ones would because we can or we need the numbers. Yeah, yeah. They're just going, hey, we're going to do you guys a favour. Yeah. We're going to make you better. It'll be awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I love that in this story, and I don't think it would happen in later Who and certainly not in modern Who, they do take the time, that whole scene where the astronauts are in danger, mm-hmm. and the Cybermen don't say, no, no, ignore them. You know, we're busy, look at us. They're like, oh... They're they're gonna die. Like you can't save them now. And the it, humans are well we need to try. And the cybermen are, Okay, cool.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Have a try. And at the end when they the astronauts blow up, they're like, We told you so. Yeah, didn't need to bother. Yeah,
2: yeah, it was
0: illogical for you to do that, but fair enough. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, like
1: they were proving a point about yes. how accurate they were.
0: Yeah that did stand out for me that they actually said they stood back and said no let them do it that's fine <laughs> it was uh, a very onside many, and it was great. i enjoyed it it was great mm.
1: it was and particularly as we've seen those astronauts for now almost two episodes mm. you actually give a damn when they You're get blown invested, up for sure and so so for both the audience to be invested and watching the characters particularly polly be invested yeah And then contrasting that with the Cybermen who are like, see, we told you so. Let's Mm. move on.
3: They will not return. Why not? It is unimportant now. But we must get them back. There is really no point. They could never reach Earth now. But don't
1: you care? Care? No. Why should I care?
3: Because they're
2: people and they're going to die.
1: I do not understand you there are people dying all over your world, yet you do not care about that
2: so callous it's
1: so, yeah it's a wonderful way to do it
2: yeah it really is yeah rather than just having an impassive robot to to indulge them in that way to then prove that they were wrong yeah it's it's particularly heinous I think yeah. on their part <laughs> all right well you mentioned the uh, the astronauts and, and the snow cap base crew as well maybe we should we should just sort of skip through them our our um our our leader,
0: I suppose, is General Cutler, played by the Canadian Robert Beatty. Wow, isn't he great? He's so he's so sort of a hard bitten, tough guy, an American. Great hair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's everything you want an American general to be, <laughs> and he plays it so straight. But I, I think we just need to take a moment to talk about Beatty's credits. Yep. Because this guy has got an amazing list going back to 1939. Let's go. Look, for a start, he was in Blake Seven in the first episode. He plays <laughs> Grand Foster, so I've got to mention that. This guy's been in the Pink Panther Strikes Again, uh, Superman 3 and 4, oh, Labyrinth, yeah. Gathering Storm. Uh, he was in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Oh. And interestingly enough, he played Lieutenant Bush in the 1951 adaption of Hornblower, which is a part that Paul McGann would play uh, in the TV adaptation. So nice little extra link there. But yeah, this is... This is a big deal for Doctor Who to have this guy. Like, mm. I don't think we recognize him now, but for 1966, this was a guy that was in blockbuster films. Yeah, sure. And he rocks up in Doctor Who.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's, it's really nice to have an American that doesn't have a BBC Englishman <laughs> play, playing an American accent. He does it, though, it's Canadian's much closer to American, so it's much more believable. It's at this point that our American sweet dogs
2: will say, oh, actually, he's definitely Canadian. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. <laughs> But do you know who he is for me, at least? Um, He very much typifies that sort of mid-20th century, post-World War II, stereotypical image of the American general. Mm -hmm. And it's very much uh, based on um, uh, General Curtis LeMay, one of those real hawks um, within the the Pentagon. Uh, And we see it... Uh, I suppose again in things like uh, Doctor Strangelove where you have General uh, Jack D. Ripper, I think this is that type of character mm-hmm. again seeping through that public consciousness and imagination at that point in time. He's, he's very patterned as well. He's very, oh like, yeah, good call. Can't won't give up, just sort of uh, simple straight down the straight down the line. Yeah. It's great. Because we see that don't we in part three where it look you know, the doctor's gone off and he's actually missing William Hartnell for the entire of the third um, third episode. And who takes the sort of <laughs> proactive stance here? It's General Cutler where he says, I'm going to launch the Z-Bomb. That's
3: where you're wrong, Mr. Dyson. We can do something. We can destroy him on that. But oh, yeah. that's impossible. Impossible is not in my vocabulary, Dr. Barclay. And just how do you propose
1: to do it? By using the Z-Bomb.
3: Oh, no. You can't do that.
1: I can and I will. Oh, yeah, the Z-Bomb. <laughs> And it's a great character for the Hartnell Doctor to play off as well because yeah, Hartnell, even though he looks like this tired old man, mm-hmm. he goes toe-to-toe with Cutler. It does. And there's some great exchanges because neither of them gives a, gives an inch. <laughs> yes. So that wonderful thing where Cutler's lecturing the Doctor and the Doctor turns around and says, I don't like your tone, sir. Yeah. And the General just looks straight back and goes, "Well, I don't like your face or your hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
3: you can assure me of what you like, but whether I believe you or not is another question. Hmm. I haven't got time to deal with these now. But when I do, you'd better have a good explanation. I don't like your tomb, sir. And I don't like your face, nor
0: your hair. <laughs> the hair crack. I was not <laughs> expecting that. I, I
2: loved it. I can imagine. It makes perfect sense. The American general, short back and sides. He is like <laughs> this Edwardian slash Victorian grandfather with like the swept back yeah. white hair. It's
0: brilliant. I totally forgot about that. It was so funny.
1: <laughs> And he also gets the line about standing around like a bunch of frustrated penguins as well. So. <laughs>
2: yeah. Also on the base, we've got a few others. Um, we've mentioned before, I suppose, where we have some sort of crass notes hit uh, in the way in which, I suppose, other cultures are represented. <sighs> and the character of Tito here, which is, I guess, a Hispanic name, applied to the, the Italian character. An Irishman playing an Italian.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so good. Is it Shane Shelton who's the uh, who's the actor here? I think it is. Yeah. So he's he's an Irishman, is he? Playing Tito. I think well he's born in Ireland, I'm not sure if he's okay. an Irishman. That's great. Born maybe not bred, but yeah, his uh, he immediately starts out by singing um the, the uh Immobile, <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's very cliched. Um, and then you've got sort of the rest of the the international meant to be sort of an international team. You've got Americans, Australians, yeah. and then when you get to the UN, there's a. I think it's played by a Greek actor. I'm not sure if he's playing it Greek, but there's also um, an African gentleman in sort of traditional African garb. Yeah, and I don't I know if they're sort of playing on like national stereotypes, which is a little and it's a little clumsy, but like I think it is. But it's it's like the 60s attempt sure. at that sort of internationalism and the spirit of you know the UN and we see it again later with uh, Troughton what's that episode with Troughton Moonbase yeah and they have the international team it's a little bit clumsy
1: yeah it's the start of a trend here for 60s Doctor Who but Mm. it's really informative that in a British show they just have this assumption in the 60s that everybody's going to be either European or American (laughs) (laughs) but I love the fact that even though it is a British show the three astronauts that we see are yeah. Australian, mm-hmm. American, and African-American. Yeah, yeah. There's actually no Brit that goes up, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is really interesting. And we need to mention the African astronaut. This is Earl Cameron. Yeah, 100.
2: Yeah. The oldest living, surviving, uh, I guess, cast of, uh, of of classic Doctor Who. Uh,
1: yeah, ever since Olaf Pooley died a year or two ago, he's now yeah. the oldest, yeah.
2: And yeah. he's got a
0: knighthood, am I right? A he's separate? got uh, CBE, C- a CBE,
2: commander of the British Empire, yeah. <laughs> Fancy that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he's great, yeah. But he only gets a couple of episodes, and he's sitting down the whole time. But
2: yeah, it's him and Alan White playing the uh, the Australian um, uh, astronaut sitting next to him, Schultz
0: um, in in Zeus Four. Yeah, they've only got small parts, but like you said before, but um, you care for them. Yeah, you care about them.
1: Yeah, they make it real. And it's worth noting at this point that we're right in the middle of the space race here. Mm-hmm. So so at the time that this story has been done the Gemini and the Mercury missions have literally just wrapped up mm-hmm. and this is where NASA's going to the Apollo mm-hmm. missions yeah, right. so literally we've done the whole can we go into space yep can we make things happen in space yep now let's actually do it on the way to the moon Yeah. <laughs> so so I think the audience at this point is really engaged in the space race Yeah. so they get why it's important to take time and you see this in this sort of era of movies and TV they take the time to travel and things move slowly and the way that's all done it's just so realistic but the, the audience amazing. would have been expecting that it, and, yeah. and it
2: comes through in even things like 2001 which is made in 1969 there's that sort of very slow moving because mm-hmm. they want to see they're so fascinated at this point by the process of you know space travel that those I think what probably would pass as you know rather sort of sh- uh, you know slow and dull kind of uh, yeah. manoeuvres in space that was de rigueur back then that was, that was the main fascination in the 60s <laughs>
1: So, look, I've got a couple of things to say about this next point, but we need to talk about how the production team's gone to real lengths to make this a really genuine, multinational, multi-ethnic cast. Mm. Really respectful, as you said, you know, there's an African guy who's clearly sort of... A top advisor to the head of the space program, and there's an African American astronaut, and wow, isn't this progressive? There's not a single woman yep. in the Snow Base <laughs> or back at European Control.
0: Well, there's—I I, do—I do remember uh, there is a woman back at European UN Control, but you never see her face, only the back of her head. Oh. Right. So many times, uh, I kept—I kept thinking, when are we going to get to see her face? And you never do. It's always just the back of her head. <laughs> so in a, in a way, I mean, there is—yeah—in a way, there is—there isn't really. It's just Polly, really. It's strange. Yeah. yeah.
1: And and you know I get that at the time it would have just seemed amazing like like there there would be no concept that a woman would ever be an astronaut, Mm. you know, let alone I mean at that stage women couldn't even serve as frontline troops or fighter pilots, so.
0: But that's what Doctor Who does. It sort of looks to the future, like how they we've got a multi ethnic cast and a a sort of um different countries working together in a kind of sort of utopia. Yeah, it's a shame they couldn't just take a little leap, leap further.
1: I absolutely agree, and Mm. it's an interesting point to make, I think. I'm not saying I condone it, but it's an interesting point to make that it was a further leap of faith to go beyond Mm. a multi-ethnic caste, to have a multi-gender caste. But if you look at where we are in 66... Like, okay, Star Trek's just coming out in America. Yeah. Now, in that, you've got two female regulars, Yeoman Rand, who's there to wear a short skirt and carry the drinks, mm-hmm. and Lieutenant Uhura, who's there to answer the telephone. <laughs> so, you know, okay, Star Trek had a bridge, you know, female bridge crew, but, like, what does Ohura do in the movies in the 70s? All she does is take her kid off in Star Trek 5. So, you know, Trek wasn't that progressive, but... Doesn't you- she kidnap a dude and put him in a closet? in search for sport I, I thought that was silly but I can, um, maybe they were together at the time <laughs> but it's, the production team does start to make that leap because by the time you get to The Wheel in Space which yes. is a few Simon stories down the track yeah. not only do you introduce Zoe Harris as the companion but you've also got Gemma Corwin and mm-hmm. Tanya Lernoff who are mm-hmm. very professional active members of the space crew so I think that the Doctor Who production team gets it slightly wrong here like yeah. like like points for trying yeah yeah but they get a lot better over the next two or three years yeah, yeah
0: we're almost true. there now but not quite yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: and it does improve so like by the end of the 60s I think they've got it they've got it right
2: yeah I think definitely within wheeler space because which what's that only 18 months away I think as well in the Troughton regime or Trouton um era rather where we're essentially at the beginning of season four now and wheel of space is at the end of season five.
1: Exactly. So in that space of two and a half, basically less than two seasons, yeah. I think they do get it right. So they're they're getting there, you they're know. There. But but it it just it really stands out now.
2: Yeah. Okay, well, I'd like to talk about um, another first in this particular story, which is the introduction of what would become essentially Doctor Who and apotheosis with respect to its narrative structure, and that is the base under siege. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is something that I guess is a tried and tested formula that Doctor Who will repeat and refine over the next few years, particularly as Dave said earlier in Season 5, which is like really the apotheosis of that. But here we have it for the very, very first time. We see, I guess... Uh, the main tropes of base under siege emerge.
1: So, I once made a list of the five main tropes of oh. a base under siege stories. Let's compare notes. Oh. Go on. I, 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 if I can plug another podcast, when I appeared on Forty Two to Doomsday's Trouten special, mm-hmm. I actually went through every Trouten story and compared them versus these five criteria. Ooh, nice. So, the five criteria I had were an isolated location. Yes. A monster. Tick. A commander that goes nuts. Yes. Oh. A multi-ethnic cast. Good. Sure. And a weird futuristic slash techie sort of setting. Ooh, you, yeah,
2: all of those <laughs> apply here. Okay. <laughs> I, I I think all of those elements are actually, um, I suppose, the ingredients of of a base under siege. In terms of the narrative structure, the way that it progresses, I've got about ooh, half a dozen points or so. Please. just want to go through these, and let's sort of tick them off as they go through. And I've I'm, I'm really sort of extrapolated this, not just from the 10th planet, which, again, is the first one of its kind, but from base under siege um, stories that we get all the way through after this. So the first thing, I guess, is that the Doctor and the Companions arrive at a remote scientific and or military base.
0: They arrive at a lot of military bases. Yeah. The
2: (laughs) The second thing is that upon arriving there, um, they realise that they're in the midst of sort of life-threatening malfunctions or even murders that are occurring
0: at the base. Yeah, so many murders. You think they'd be better at arriving at a murder and making it like immediately saying hold on hold on we have to make sure it doesn't look like we killed him because we definitely didn't are they going to show up with guns they have it's too late all right okay
2: so two out of two so far all right okay third one then is that the doctor is either suspected and or not believed in any way
1: it's interesting here because on the one hand cutler doesn't believe the doctor on the other, suddenly they're at the South Pole mm. and three people turn up. So yeah. he's like, I don't believe what you're saying, but you can't just have rocked up at the front door either. Like, something's going on here.
2: Yeah. Next point is that the alien threat begins to become apparent via a meticulous, overly elaborate plan for conquest. <laughs> yeah,
1: moon based check. Yeah. The... Wheel in Space, I think, is the archetype. Oh, of that. Yeah. One. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's got it down to the most elaborate form you can imagine. The good guys then suffer more losses as the alien threat looks absolutely insurmountable. Mm. At that point, either the companion or the doctor stumbles across or has a moment of genius, depending on which, uh, to provide the solution to the threat, which is usually a sci-fi idea extrapolated from a bit of crap science.
1: (laughs) I think we've got the Z-bomb here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, some
0: googly-googly. In the invasion, um, there was a Cyber Megatron bomb. (laughs) I love the Cyber Megatron bomb.
2: Okay. At that point, the monsters are defeated. But they're defeated via not anticipating that the humans would use their one mortal weakness against them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This sometimes comes at the cost of another human life. Um, Sometimes it's a sacrifice. I guess maybe the closest that we get here is the uh, destruction of the Zeus 4 rocket ship. And the number of deaths on the snow-capped base as well.
1: Yeah, including Cutler himself.
2: Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, The last act in uh, Based Under Siege is that the Doctor and his companions will sneak away back to the TARDIS, usually unnoticed in the confusion and the shock that arises from the
0: sudden and complete defeat of the alien menace off to start another adventure I love when they sneak off and don't say goodbye I love yeah. it it's always, it's sometimes they take a, 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 long, a long look around at the chaos in front of them and then oh, let's just slip away <laughs> it's great I love it I think I mean this
2: is obviously the last Hartnell story but this is a real uh, I, I suppose hallmark of the way that a lot of Troughton stories finish as well it just disappears and um yeah, off they're, off, they're off onto another adventure,
1: mm-hmm. which is good because it spares the whole sort of trite, silly Scooby Doo esque yeah. ending to a story.
0: Yeah, they'd have to shake everyone's hand. Goodbye, goodbye, <laughs> goodbye, goodbye. We'll miss
1: you. We'll miss you too.
0: <laughs> I, I, I do like a good "We're gonna rebuild our planet" uh, ending, though. That's one of my favourites. Yeah, but don't expect any help for us. No, we're, we're out of here. Yeah, sorry, guys. No, that's, we've done enough. Can we can we get back to the Z bomb, please? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think we have to, because apart from the fact that I just love this idea that in the in the 20 years from 1966 to when the story is set, 86, they've gone through the B-bomb and the C-bomb, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they've got to the Z-bomb. All the way, the way to the end. alphabet. That's right. And of course, because Cutler's American, it is a Z-bomb. And, yeah, not a Z-bomb. Yeah,
0: which is just really weird. But And because it's the future, it's got to be an X or a Z to make it spacey. <laughs> Particularly so.
1: Which, which takes me to my main point, which is there's so much stuff in this story that feels like sci-fi cliche, mm. but... It was all before these were sci-fi cliches. Yeah, right. So the idea of cybernetic creatures, the idea of a, you know big Z bomb or Z bomb or you know something big that can destroy it, the, the, the tech that you see in here, the idea of the aliens or the Cybermen getting their power from their home planet and dying when their yes. home planet is knocked out, or making
0: like, trying to um make, trying to make the, the the humans like them, trying to assimilate.
1: Yeah, all of that sort of stuff is now like standard template, boilerplate science fiction. Mm. Even something like Star Wars and the Phantom Menace has the big conceit at the end where oh if you draw it, if you blow up the main ship, all the yeah. androids fall down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like sure. so this is this is just showing kind of how cutting edge the Hartnell era was. Like nothing was doing this before. Yeah. But now it's all just standard stuff. Yeah. It's it's all starting here.
2: I think that's true and on the Z bomb as well, I think it's really pertinent to the time. we were talking before about the the space age and the way in which the the race to the moon that finished in nineteen sixty nine with the Apollo eleven mission Um, Was sort of capped that that program. I think what we have here is a sort of one of those sort of sci-fi ideas extrapolated out to the nth degree. Where obviously we're living through at that point, nineteen sixty-six, the the shadow of mutually assured destruction. The Cold War is well and truly underway. Mm -hmm. East-West relations are particularly at at a at a cold point. We've had the Cuban Missile Crisis five years previously to this. Uh, obviously, atomic warfare is a, is a shadow that looms large over over this entire culture, whether it's American or British um, or, or indeed Soviet. Um, and I think, I guess, you know, we have that mad moment in Part 3 where the, where the general decides, General Cutler decides to take the fight to to the Cybermen and to Mondas. Um, I think he, he doesn't come across particularly sympathetic in that moment. Mm. I think that sort of cunning and that... Um, The smarts, I suppose, that the Doctor always favours, the intelligent way of of resolving something is, is, is shelved because he's a general who's a bit of a hawk and will gladly not just blow up Mondas... But quite potentially, as Doctor Barclay says,
0: wipe out an entire half of, of yeah in, mm-hmm.
2: of, of the planet through
0: um, irradiation. I think maybe maybe the reason for all the sort of vaguely utopian leaning science fiction of the time, like your Star Treks and, and your multinational people, like, countries working together, yeah. like in this, it's a reaction to like so much, so much like so to the Cold War and like um, the years, that, all those years that are going to come of uh, you know two sides uh, fighting each other in proxy wars and never really getting there.
1: But what's important in this is that although there's never any doubt that the doctor is right it Mm. shouldn't be done that's not the way you do it cutler is wrong cutler is not shown to be ridiculous or absurd like you get the logical progression that takes him to my planet is being invaded i have a weapon that will destroy their planet i'm going to use it Mm. and even though he does crack up in part three Mm -hmm. there was never a moment when i thought this is not realistic like if i was that guy with my planet being invaded, my son's up in a space yeah. capsule in the, in the atmosphere, and I have a weapon to stop this, I'm gonna use it. And there's a, there's a great moment where Polly actually calls him out and says, I think you're enjoying this. And he smacks her right down and says, do you think I'm enjoying this? My son's life in danger, mm. I've already lost two astronauts, my planet's in danger, and you say I'm enjoying this? I'm doing my job. So he's given sympathy, but at no point are we in doubt that the doctor's right, he shouldn't do it. You want me to take over the tracking?
3: Yes. Yeah. Establish contact immediately. Uh, one other thing. This is a dangerous mission. We need
1: it for a brave man. So we asked for volunteers. So?
3: Your son volunteered. Katra, are you there? Yes, sir. Yes, I'm here. You sent my son to his death. You realize that, I hope.
2: I think you're right. We are allowed to understand the thought processes and the emotional sort of stresses that you would be put under in that position to come to that situation where it's like, what do you do? I don't know what I would do. I'd like to think that I'd do what
0: the doctor does. So that's a sort of governing principle in my life. (laughs) I think he does lose a little sympathy once he learns what might happen to a whole hemisphere of people and then still decides to disobey his... um his superiors and go ahead with it. But you're right, I mean it's when you're dealing with um, potential death of his child, people go to extreme lengths and do all kinds of things when that when that happens. Yeah, I think that's a
2: particularly important aspect and the inclusion of the Zeus five astronaut as General
0: Cutler's son mm. is critical in that telling of the sure. story. Sure. Otherwise it kinda of just makes him into a yeah. Guy goes mad and wants to win. Exactly.
1: And, and the supporting cast actually come down on both sides of the argument. Dr. Barclay comes down on the side of the Doctor, but a couple of the others are like, well, hang on, these aliens are invading this. Yeah. Maybe the General's got a point.
0: One of the creepiest things we haven't really talked about, the Cybermen, uh, and it doesn't really come up many other times in the show, is uh, the way they talk in this one. Not only is the cadence... Um, super alien and a little robotic and a little off, but also the, the, my favorite thing about these Cybermen is that when they talk, it's simply the mouth simply opens and the mm. the the voice the voice the words come out and there's no sort of lip movement or anything like that. It's so creepy. I love it,
1: it. it is it is designed to be and it comes across as Very. a computer is speaking on their behalf. Yeah. So they open their mouth and a computer speaks mm. and it's got computer cadences, it's got computer intonation mm. and it is really really weird and it's. Wonderful.
2: I love how that's used in the in the series ten finale, where we have uh, world enough and time, and we, we're brought back to this, I suppose, the genesis of the Cybermen, if you like, where they're where they're lined up in a, a row in a in a hospital ward, mm. and it's people communicating through those machines by essentially punching in buttons. Yeah. it's so creepy. Like as you say, the, the mouth opening is really weird and strange, and yeah. there's no sort of lip movements mm. or whatever the case is. Um, but it just put me in mind of that really sort of horrific moment in, in, uh, yeah, it's,
0: it's, it's so simple, but it's something, it's just so un- unnerving and unsettling. Really I mean, never, is. never get used to it. And I love it. It's great. Yeah. Um, and like these Cybermen in particular, I've said before that, like there are some Cybermen stories where it's not super clear what they're after or that their goals are a little bit, well, they're not that particularly inspiring, but in this one, they're survivors. They're mm. they're um they're just trying to survive. And they said, you know, they were talking about their improvements. Uh, makes them they get freedom from disease and they make them impervious to uh, heat and to cold. They're they're equipping themselves to survive uh, and to survive anything.
1: Yeah. So this idea that the planet Mondas, which is Earth's twin planet, mm. has left its now nice, cushy little niche in the galaxy and drifted off into space. Mm. That must have been just horrific for the population of moderns mm. to go through. Mm. So you get why they, there is this desperation. Yeah. You know, their their climate would have changed so many times, and they wouldn't have had natural sunlight mm. in the same way we do it. So it it kind of all works. It's not overstated. Yeah. But it all works, and you're right. They're just desperate to survive, mm. and it it really comes across. The other thing that I love about this model of Cybermen that I think's lost with both the 80s Cybermen and the modern Cybermen, is they genuinely tower over people.
3: Mm. Oh, yeah. Like,
1: yeah. when they walk in, they tower over Cutler, they tower over everyone else, but at the same time, the Doctor kind of stands level with them. <laughs> Even though they physically stand over them, he still goes toe-to-toe, and the Doctor isn't diminished by that, <laughs> yes. which is really, really
0: good. And it, uh, it happens again in Tomb of the Cybermen when the Controller is just so huge, so tall, and his imprint in the um, rejuvenation chamber mm. is just so enormous. Uh, yeah, the size thing really works. Yeah,
2: it does. But And I think you're right, Dave. It, the Doctor, no matter what body he's wearing, he stands up to that. The the size of his spirit and, and the character is, is equal to, you know, a seven, eight foot tall <laughs> Cyberman. Yeah. That point earlier that you mentioned, Dave, actually about Mondas sort of spinning off into the depths of, of the universe whether through intent or accident who knows but I'm assuming it's it's accident mm. you know obviously the human race on Mondas is doomed at that point there, there's there's nothing for them to do but to eventually sort of come to this conclusion of, of being cybermen that story is particularly harrowingly uh, captured in a big Finnish audio called spare parts uh, and I can't recommend that highly enough to our sweet dogs
1: yeah, I'm not somebody who's listened to a lot of Big Finish, not for any reason other than there's only so many hours in a day sure. you can do Doctor Who <laughs> there's stuff. There's a lot out there. But that is one that I have listened to. It's written by Mark Platt, I believe. Yes. Oh. Uh, who wrote a McCoy story on a lot of the new adventures. And yeah, it is oh. one of their best. It's got a really good reputation. I it's love a Mark Platt, out. me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> nice one.
2: Check it out. All right. So, Dave, I'm going to take the opportunity of, of having you here as a, a, a recognised Hartnell fan in the room to ask you a few questions i guess and it's really around the legacy of hartnell as a doctor uh that magical era in 1963 through to 1966 coinciding with the white of technology and that sort of optimism about science and how, where it can take us and how that sort of comes through in science fiction particularly doctor who and i guess a lot of that stuff is missing i mean there's there's a bunch of um, Hartnell that survives but there's a bunch of Hartnell that we're probably never going to get back again And I, I guess my question is what are we missing in terms of modern a modern audience with the missing episodes
1: I think we're missing not all of his best stories but certainly some of his best mm, stories yeah I think there's no doubt that if Marco Polo existed mm. that would probably be recognized as the best historical story that Doctor Who's ever done wow if the Daleks master plan existed in its entirety which is 12 episodes plus a prequel episode of which only 3 of those 13 exist I think that would stand up as one of the if not the greatest epic Doctor Who story of all time but we're also missing lots of little stuff in there like i think the smugglers would be a lovely tale yeah the myth makers which is set in the siege of troy oh that is comedy gold
2: i love that novelization
1: and the the the, the audio still exists i listen to that every once every year because Uh i just enjoy it so much um any 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 story where the cliffhanger is the trojan horse going into troy (laughs) and (laughs) somebody's saying we should be bringing this in woe to troy and the line is it's too late to say woe to the horse. <laughs> and that's the cliffhanger. Um, Brilliant. And it even has episode titles like A Small Profit, Quick Return, which is a wonderful one. And the novel has, of course, the chapter title A Doctor in the Horse. Yeah.
0: <laughs> something I miss about Heinel's story is that each one's got its, each, each episode's got its own title. Oh, that's true, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, some of them are really lovely. But yeah, you're right. There are a lot of missing ones. Um, I,
2: I think, you know, you mentioned previously the massacre is something that you really enjoy.
1: Yes, and again, the Massacre, which is set during the Massacre of Bartholomew's Mm. Eve in in Paris. Such an obscure historical event. It it is, but it's such a powerful one for French history, and there's so much human drama in it. Mm. And, you know, you've got the Medici's involved and all of that sort of, you know, Protestants versus Catholics Mm. history. And that's a really powerful drama as well. At the same time, you have something like the Celestial Toymaker, which is a very contentious story in Doctor Who fandom, of which only one episode exists. and It's very hard to judge this. I think what would be a flawed but incredibly wonderful and surreal piece of nineteen sixties television that you kind of need to see to really understand.
2: Sure, I understand that. I think the visuals of that would probably be a little bit better than we're anticipating, and that might be enough to make it interesting, if not entirely salvage it. I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah, as I say, I I think it would be flawed. I, I, but. For example, when you listen to episode three of that, mm-hmm. that is a very boring piece of audio. audio. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if when you actually see the performances and the yeah, set what's knows? going on, it could be better. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. Um, the same with the Daleks master plan. Like, you know, that, that epic, what, would, what does that look like?
2: Uh, see, that's one of those stories. I think if I could pick one to come back, particularly through the Hartnell uh, era, it would be that one. The novelization, it's two books. It's, a incre- it's Doctor Who does space opera with Daleks. It's incredible
1: yeah it is amazing that would be my pick of stories i want to see return (laughs)
2: all right well i guess that sort of um gives us an idea of some of the missing episodes out there but what about i guess what we have seen which is quite recent in recent times an adventure in space and time Mm -hmm. and and how that i mean i'm going to put my cards on the table and say that i feel that it is a really beautiful love letter to that era i mean what what did you get out of that? I mean, you you're, you're far more familiar with Hartnell than most of us, I think. Is do you think it's an accurate representation for the most part? Does it hit the right notes, or do we get a view of of that era that maybe just actually didn't happen?
1: I think that emotionally, it certainly hits all the correct and accurate beats. Yeah, there are clearly characters in there that have been, uh, you know, merged together or smushed together yeah. into one character to save the drama. There are clearly bits of drama that are inserted there to make it. Exciting, like all the stuff about the um, set designer who refuses to work for a woman producer and everything, that's all completely made up. Mm. And, and, and I guess in that sense, if I was you know, the grandkid of that set designer, I'd be a little bit peeved.
3: Oh, yeah. But
1: you need to have some drama and some tension in there. At the same time, though, a lot of the exchanges between the Hartnell character and others, particularly Sidney Newman, are taken directly from people's memories. Wow. So that wonderful scene where Hartnell's not sure it's all working and he's not sure if it's going to work and he sort of wants to walk off set... As Sidney Newman comes, he says, "No, you're great, and you're the right man <laughs> yeah. for the job because I remember the performance you did in this, and remember when you're in that movie, and that's the guy I want to see in this show." And Hartnell's like, "Oh wow, you know, you really want me? I'll, <laughs> I'll stay." And like, that's a really lovely moment. It is, yeah. yeah. And th- and that is all, all completely accurate. Um, it shows, I think, the best of Hartnell. It shows the weaker parts of Hartnell. You know, he, yeah. he was a, he was a difficult man sometimes. Sure. Let me say, I think that what history tells us is that if you got on with William Hartnell he was a really good friend to have in your corner if he decided that you're a bit of a waste of space he didn't hide that that's what he thought of you and I think that's why we get these really conflicting stories about him like some people go I loved hanging out when working with William Hartnell I loved going to the pub with him he's a great guy and others go he was a bastard and I think he just was one of those guys who treated different people differently and and, and he's a complicated guy like I I think most of us are
2: yeah I, I think that's true I mean David Bradley as, as initially William Hartnell. Let's take that to start with. Do you, think, do you think that plays well in an adventure in space and time? Do you think that he's a fit for William Hartnell?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think he captures Hartnell wonderfully. He captures his relationship with Verity Lambert, the first producer, really yeah. well with his family. But also that part of Hartnell that he loved this idea that he was now an icon mm-hmm. for children yeah and so there's that wonderful scene where he's the children in, in the, the park, park recognize yeah. Him, yeah. and he, he goes and leads them on an adventure and, <laughs> like that that's very accurate we've got a little bit of home footage of him at a couple of air shows for example playing the doctor mm-hmm. and he clearly was just loving this idea that he was this figure that children <laughs> looked up to and and i think bradley captures all of that really well and at the same time captures the fact that this was a guy who was you know running on a treadmill really fast trying to keep up yeah and I think sometimes terrified that he wasn't yeah
0: I, I think they were just got really, got really lucky that they picked an actor like David Bradley I mean they could have picked anyone um, and they were just lucky that they picked someone who's just so compelling to watch uh, and he sort of gives it gives it a little bit of his own his own takes. It's, it always go, uh, goes over to um, twice upon a time as well. Like he said that he wasn't trying to do an exact like an impression of the first Doctor. He was trying to give it a little bit of his own.
2: That's a nice seg because
0: hmm. I mean I think what
2: we have here are two different uh, portrayals Very, by the same actor. Yeah. I think the William Hartnell one is touching and beautiful, and mm. it's lovely to hear that it's mostly accurate. And you know he does a good job in in an Adventure in Space and Time. The next question is probably a bit more contentious, and that is the way that David Bradley portrays the first Doctor in Twice Upon a Time.
1: I, I have a bit more of a problem with that. I think that his acting is very good. He's, he, I, I, I would have never ever say that David Bradley is a bad actor. Let me like, put that out. Sure. There. He, he, yep. he, does, he performs that script really, really well. I think that the character he's performing, though, is the fan conception of Hartnell but not an accurate depiction of Hartnell. Mm. In that, if you kind of just went on what fans think the Hartnell era is like, or you just watch a couple of stories, you don't get the same vibe and the same overall picture as if you really drill down and watch his whole era. Mm. And I think Bradley missed some of the warmth. He missed some of the the, the sparkle in the eye. Sure. The, 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 uh, the anarchist. Now, there were times where Howell's <laughs> Doctor is just this fun-loving anarchist yeah. who just wants to throw society at them in. And, 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 you know, we talked about him being in the 60s and he's got the long 60s hair yeah. and, and everything. And it, 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 we referenced the War Machines earlier where Polly's like, oh, wow, I dig your fab gear and like, yeah. compares him to John Peel, the DJ or something. Yeah. So there is that part of him that I don't think that Bradley captured well. Now, how much of that was the script? How much of that was yeah. Bradley? Did it's, they
0: write that in or not? Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I don't think it was written in. Mm. Uh, so... It, it's tough for me. As somebody who watches Hartnell on a regular basis and knows his story as well, yeah. it is hard for me to compare. I do think they miss the spark. I think go back and watch The Rescue and go back and watch The Romans and hmm. you'll see the humanity and the fun-loving part of Hartnell as well Compared that, that I think was missing from
2: this. I, th- I think you're right. And I think one of the things that maybe... Uh, sticks a little bit for me is the fact that we have the representation of an old man from the 60s with, I suppose, the not so liberal ideas around gender equality in particular. Um, that comes to the fore in the representation not of William Hartnell but of the first Doctor in Twice Upon a Time and it's not constant and throughout but there's just a handful of occasions that you just yeah. sort of think I think what they're doing is, is mistakenly conflating the idea of William Hartnell as played by David Bradley in an adventure in space and time particularly the sort of uh, uh, the brash side of him the not so sort of smooth mm. side of him with the character of the first Doctor that as as we've said, he's, he's grandfatherly and tetchy, yes, but he's also incredibly warm and, and lovely. He wasn't a typical old man at the time. No, exactly.
0: I really I enjoyed it. Like I, I think those those things that you put in there, um, like his un-PC elements, I thought they were just fun and they fit into the story well. Like it, was, it made it an entertaining story and it was a good idea. I see what you mean. Um, like conflating him with, a, with an old man at the time when in fact he was anything but yeah. the character at least. Was maybe a little bit off, but I, I just really enjoyed it. It was just a pleasure to watch them interact and see him on screen. And I just think Bradley. Was, I, I'm glad that he didn't do a really like just a sort of a straight, boring yeah. impression of, of Hartnell playing the First Doctor. He sort of gave it his own little thing because I don't really want to watch an impression. It was. Mm.
1: I I don't get too worked up about it because sure. nothing that they do in the new series will ever change my love and what I have in course. the original series. And Hartnell's performance is not changed or diminished by anything that comes afterwards. So I move past it. I feel a sense of disappointment that for somebody who is a fan of the new series and not seen the Hartnell era, they will assume that that's what the character was.
2: that's my concern too.
1: And when you go back and you look at the Hartnell era, it is... Groundbreaking in terms of the way that it deals with female characters. Mm-hmm. Susan is a really interesting character, sometimes flawed and sometimes doesn't quite work, but she's a, she's a lead character. Barbara is one of the most yeah, powerful, really dope. self-supporting, Absolutely. characters in science fiction, and the Doctor gives her utter respect. Mm-hmm. You know, they they genuinely respect each other as equals. They go to toe to toe with each other. Uh, Barbara in the Aztecs carries a story. She is the moral centre of that story, mm-hmm. and you see the same. Vicky is a wonderful, intelligent young woman yeah. that the Doctor, you know, treats with the again both both with in, in a grandfatherly way, but has a real respect for Vicky's talents and abilities. And and, they, and and you see that through.
0: And they both have agency, like, and they're both treated with respect. Like yeah. I say.
1: So I, I think that it's a shame that what should be recognised as a really groundbreaking piece of. But you know, portrayal of women in sci-fi. Kind of, some people are going to miss it because they go, "Oh, he was this slightly sexist guy obsessed mm. with cleaning." Yeah, <laughs> could have been
0: could have been one joke, maybe a one or one or, could have happened once or twice instead of maybe five or six times.
1: Yeah, look, maybe. Sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just, I just that, that that's that's my one concern, yeah. and it does play on this sort of idea of Hartle himself being. You know, some people have outwardly said that he was a bigoted man.
3: Mm. Yeah.
1: Um. I don't know how far you want to go down this path, but when I was when I was coming through fandom back in the 80s, it was taken as read that he once refused to act alongside an actor who was both gay and Jewish. Now, since then, there's been research, and they've actually pointed out that... It was, so the story was The Myth Makers, and this actor was never in the same room as The Doctor. The Doctor was outside Troy. This guy was inside Troy. So they never had to work together, and it was completely coincidence right. that that was happening. And let me say that if you're an actor who works in the BBC in the 1960s, and if you couldn't get on with gay people and Jewish people and women, <laughs> you wouldn't have been working a lot. So, so, you know, where Hart- whether Hartnell had some old-fashioned views about those things, I have no doubt, in the same way that my late beloved grandmother occasionally made some comments that make you go, no, you can't say that. <laughs> I'm sure he had those views, but the idea that he would be so bigoted as to not work mm. with his people, like, makes no sense when you consider... He worked at the BBC with people like... You know, his first producer was very... He yeah, but a woman. Yeah. His first director was Waris Hussein, yeah. a gay Asian man. Yeah. And so many other characters. So was he a man of his times? I have no doubt. But I think this idea of him as being something, mm-hmm. you know, of a bigot, I, I just don't think it stands up.
0: So I suppose you're, you're sort of a little upset that they... You, you feel like they sort of uh, didn't separate the role of Hartnell from the role of the first Doctor a little bit. conflated the two a little bit.
1: I think occasionally they took the easy path. Mm-hmm. And when you've only got an hour to tell a story and the first Doctor is... Yeah. Po- like, like let me let me make it clear. I get it. The first Doctor is the secondary character. He's the supporting there. character. Yeah, this mm. is Capaldi's final story. Yeah. Capaldi gets the light. He's the second guy. Mm. So you don't have a lot of time to do nuance. I get that. I just think that occasionally it was a little bit cheap. Mm. And there, there, There's so much more to him. And I hope anyone listening to this podcast who's never seen The Hartley Era does go back and look at some of the stories we've talked about, particularly The Tenth Planet, And and sees that there is more to him.
2: I think that's our aim. I think what we really want to do here is to encourage new To Who fans uh, out there who haven't seen much Hartnell to pick up something like The Tenth Planet. Or it could be, as you say, The Romans or The Time Meddler. The Daleks. The Daleks is a good one. Yeah, it's a particular favourite of mine. Uh,
1: Let let me say The Daleks' Invasion of Earth, I reckon, is the best Dalek story in 50 years of television. Oh, wow. I actually think that is an amazing piece of television, (laughs) The Dalek Invasion of Earth.
2: And, yeah, I think there's a lot there that speaks of a, a sort of progressive um, doctor that we, we are f- more familiar with in, in later incarnations. Hmm. That it's not something like, this was the first run, they didn't get it quite right, and then he came right with the others. No, yeah. It
0: starts with Hartnell. Yeah. It really does.
1: It really does. I, I totally agree with you guys.
0: Yeah, so how, however you feel about the old uh, uh, Bradley First Doctor, I think it's, <laughs> we should definitely encourage you to seek out more Hartnells if you haven't seen them, because they have a huge impact on the show. Yeah. And make up your own mind. Yeah, definitely. So I suppose we're
2: nearing the end of the First Doctor, or of William Hartnell's reign as the Doctor. Not the First Doctor, the Doctor, the definitive, you might say. Um, Dave, I'm going to hand this over to you, because it's, it's quite a poignant and touching moment in the history of Doctor Who.
1: It is. So, interestingly enough, it's not foreshadowed too much in the story. Yeah. There's one line that he has sure. early on where he says, I think my old body's getting a bit thin. And they're like, what do you mean? He's old, never mind. But it's not like other regenerations where you feel this build-up to it happening. Mm-hmm. So what does happen is in part four, the Doctor's been taken away and locked in the cyberspaceship. And then the Cybermen are defeated. Ben goes back to rescue the Doctor and Polly. And they hey, the Cybermen have been defeated. Let's go back to the TARDIS. And the Doctor just looks... Unwell, yeah, and he's something's a bit tired, and he's a bit, bit drawn, and he's slurring his words, and you know he says, "Oh, it's far from being all over," and mm. then he then he gets as he walks out his famous uh, final lines, "Thank you, it's good, keep warm," <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then yeah, then it's all done silently. There's no more dialogue in the story. Yeah, he goes back to the TARDIS, he collapses. All sorts of weird things are going on. The controls are operating themselves, and. The, 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 the light's going up and down and the console's flashing and he just collapses and then suddenly he just regenerates. Mm. There's a new guy standing there and with the most simple, you know, lighting and fading between images. Yeah. But it's a really powerful moment. If you didn't
0: know it was coming, it would just be such a such a mind trip. Like, can you imagine in, yeah. the reaction of viewers at home watching this? It wouldn't have been announced. No. It would have just happened. And there you have a new man. A new face somehow, yeah. for some reason, appearing. And then what's going to happen next week? Like, you've got to know. No yeah, idea.
1: it must have... I, I just can't imagine what that would be like today. Mm.
0: I, I read somewhere... Um, I don't, I'm not sure if it's... Maybe you can tell me if this is true, Dev. I read somewhere that Hartnell actually had a last line that was cut to save time. Because... Uh, yeah, well, I just read uh, recently that... Um, the director wanted to save as much uh, studio time as he could, just to make sure that regeneration sequence uh, was nailed. And so, the couple, one of the last lines he, he was supposed to say, "No, no, I simply will not give in." Ugh. And doesn't that change? Doesn't that change the whole the whole ending a little bit?
1: I have heard that. I don't know whether it's sure. apocryphal or accurate, <laughs> and, and probably nobody would know now because, let's face it, anybody who was in that room as a production team or a crew is long since passed away sure. um, there are a couple who are still alive Annika Wills is still with us mm-hmm. um, I met her a few years ago and oh, wow. uh, the costume designer of the Cybermen uh, Alexandra, Alexandra Yeah, she was on the SAGE that time uh-huh. wow. so she was not just the costume designer of the Cybermen she was the costume designer for the tenth planet, mm-hmm. so it was her job to make sure that Hartnell was in the right clothes, and when he lost his hat, she had to go find it. <laughs> so she was she was standing there as as the doctor regenerated, so to speak. So, wow. but but people like the director, the producer, Hartnell himself are long gone. We'll probably never know, but yeah. I've certainly heard that. Yes. Yeah.
0: I, I love the idea of that. Well, that
2: changes everything. And it does
0: feed into the idea of um, of Moffat in uh, Capaldi's last story refusing to regenerate. Oh,
2: yeah, there is that
0: as well, I suppose, yeah.
1: <laughs> and it does explain why the Hartnell Doctor like, lasts for like 450 years or yeah. something mm-hmm. and all the others last for about 100. <laughs> <laughs> he just won't let go that first time. Yeah. <laughs>
2: all right, then, Dave, I guess I should ask you... Uh, the significance of Hartnell's Doctor. What, what, does, what does this first definitive original version of The Doctor mean to you and particularly how he's portrayed by William Hartnell?
1: Look, thanks, Steve. That's a really fascinating question. At a very simple level, he's the guy that started a show that I love. <laughs> there would be no second, third, tenth Doctor. There'd be no Jodie Whittaker <laughs> without William Hartnell. Yeah. And I think we, we, we sometimes forget that. But as a character, to see somebody who is not physically dominant but intellectually dominant yep. and can use his character you know, to go toe-to-toe with generals <laughs> and Cybermen <laughs> is a really wonderful thing. I think that's really important. But his love of exploration, when you see the Hartnell Doctor, he's always out there looking to explore a new world, looking to explore a piece of history. He arrives on the planet Skara, the planet of the Daleks, and all he wants to do is explore. Yeah, He arrives in the French Revolution and everyone else is, you know what? I've read about this time. It's not good. We should probably get out of here. No, no, no. I need to explore this time. That, to me, is what I think has sparked a lot of my love of Doctor Who. Mm. And particularly, as I've said earlier, with the historical stuff, that that wanting to explore more and learn more, I think, really comes from Hartnell. But Mm. the final comment I'll make is something that I think echoes, Steve, what you were saying earlier about the, the, the progressive and liberal part of what he did in the 1960s. One of my favourite Hartnell lines is at the end of the arc when he says, you must travel with understanding as well as hope. <laughs> and I just think that's such a wonderful ethos for the character and the series. That is beautiful. And it's just, it just sums up his whole his whole relationship.
2: Yeah. Lovely. That's great. I, th- I think my own experiences with Hartnell um, were largely through the Target books. And I, I yeah, rather me <laughs> definitely me too. I, I went through a phase where I thought I'm going to collect every target book ever. And I'm going to start from <laughs> the beginning. And I thought it would take me two years or something like that. It didn't, it's still, it's still, <laughs> it's still ongoing. But what it meant is that during a particularly critical formative part of my life in my early teens, I went through a good two or three years where uh, the new stories that I was reading on a monthly basis were Hartnell stories. Um, And reading through those stories and sort of losing myself in there and having that sort of, you know, that wonder that you have at that age about something that you're particularly into. I got, I guess, an appreciation for Hartnell that has never really left me. It's it's that everything that you said about that spirit of adventure, of this irascible old man who's actually incredibly young at heart, who has this insatiable sort of wanderlust for travel and exploration. Um, He may well be 450 years old. But inside is someone who is young, exploring for the first time, meeting new races and people and civilizations and planets and and doing it in a way that is open, wanting to experience the most of this. And I think that comes across... Throughout all of Hartnell's brain, I think it's a wonderful portrayal and maybe the definitive portrayal of the Doctor.
0: Well, You've said already one of my favorite things about Hartnell is cause he's played, uh, because of the first Doctor's played by an, an older man. He can't be the man of action that he becomes later. He can't yeah. be running and cycling and jumping and and flying, <laughs> flying cars and stuff. He, it's all the mind. It's all a superior intellect, and he solves problems with his mind instead of with violence, which is, yeah. I think, something that sets up the Doctor... From the very start, so true, and just that abhorrence of um of violence is something that I've always that's always been one of my favorite parts of uh, Doctor Who, and mm. um using you know using your mind to solve a problem uh, or to solve or to beat uh you know a terrifying intractable foe, <laughs> and uh, it's, it all starts with Heinel.
2: yeah,
1: and he's also an actor with impeccable comic timing, yeah, <laughs> when he's, when he's given a joke he he absolutely sparkles, <laughs> but all the stuff we've talked about is done without any backstory. Yeah. Without any continuity. Mm. So we now are loaded with that. And that that's what happens when you have a program plus for fifty years. Yeah, yeah. He Hartnell, the first doctor, it's just happening. Yeah. He just rocks up and has adventures. Yeah. And there's there's no backstory, there's no he's a time lord, there's no mm. he's from Gallifrey. Mm. It's just what you want to do that week. The, yeah. Ru-
0: the writers and the producers are just sort of were well, literally making it up as they as they went along yeah. without yeah. any canon or any of that rubbish to worry about. <laughs> they were just having fun writing sixties adventures and it somehow got solidified into the best show ever. All right, well, cool. That pretty much concludes the body of the text. <laughs> and so maybe Dave, you'll um, you'll indulge <laughs> us in the the cheesy ending part of our of our of our podcast.
1: That's the part I always look forward to when I listen. So I'm very happy to.
0: <laughs> I'm really glad.
1: I, I I actually get passionate at driving home from work listening to your cliffhangers. Going, <laughs> no, that was a good one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it's time to, like you say, it's time to do cliffhangers. <laughs> Or Claggers, here we
2: go. <laughs> Part 1. Out in the freezing cold, Tito up? and another soldier are confronted by creatures disguised in human clothes, who then reveal themselves before mercilessly killing the two snow capped based crew with blows to the neck. Panning up from a clearly human hand, the camera reveals the three creatures to be Cybermen. <laughs>
1: look, this is not just a cracker. This is like top 10 cliffhangers of all time. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So it, it is amazing. We described it earlier. It's not just the build-up to it, but the way that it slowly pans up, mm. the human hand, mm-hmm. the robotic chest, and the kind of halfway between face, and mm. just the, what, what the hell is yes. this? Yes. Q credits. Yeah, you've got to tune in next week to just find out what was going on.
0: Is there a more iconic Cyberman cliffhanger? I mean, there's the them walking down the Gosh. steps in front of Paul's Cathedral. Yeah, the invasion, the invasion rank ranks up there. And this I, one's got to be up there.
1: I think that. I think them waking from their tombs.
2: Oh yeah, in Tim of the Cybermen. Oh, yeah, Cybermen have got a lot of crackers. And
1: Earthsho- <laughs> Earthshock Part One. Oh, where they're sure. revealed where after they revealed, yeah. you
2: know eleven odd years or whatever sure. it is, bit sure. away. I think that's true. Um, look, I'm going to say this is a cracker, oh, super cracker, because it's not just the Cybermen; it's the setting. It, we're at the South Pole. Mm. There's a snowstorm. The TARDIS is in the in the background. There, the the dead men at their feet, and mm. they're just impervious to all of it. It's wonderful. <laughs> okay, that's definitely a cracker. Then part two. <laughs> Despite their best attempts to repel a cyber invasion from the planet Mondas, the radar display at Snowcap Base clearly indicates that there is an entire flotilla
0: of cyber ships on its way right now to land on Earth.
2: <laughs>
0: it's a great, it's a—it's like a rare, good radar screen, I said before. There's a lot of bad radar screens in early Doctor Who. Well, not, maybe not bad, but like actual radar screens that you can't really see what's going on. There's one in the invasion that's... A, to keep showing this radar screen, in the invasion, and it's so hard to see the dots. This is just like a piece of card behind a screen, and it looks great. I love it. I love the the dots are there, sort of moving over the the screen with all the lines. I love it. It's wonderful.
1: It's one of those cliffhangers that escalates the drama yeah. and turns things up. So it goes from okay, there's eight Cybermen invading to mm-hmm. wow, there's thousands of Cybermen mm-hmm. invading. And just as you said, that image of all those dozens of little dots yeah. on the radar. Without any need for a special yeah. effect, yeah, yeah, you just go, wow! There's dozens of them, <laughs> it is, and they're coming towards us. It is
0: kind of like halfway between world pe- uh, word peril and actually filming a million Cybermen spaceships. Well, it's, it's like ne- a nice, like a neat, concise, clean it, way it of is. showing it. And it's 1966, and yeah, we have no budget. And it's probably the cleverest way of doing oh, it. I love it. This
2: is a cracker for me. <laughs> yeah, cracker. I, love. I love how it's done.
4: Cracker for me. Yeah.
2: All right, it's unanimous again. Cracker. Part 3. Well, it's a classic Doctor Who countdown as we reach towards zero on the launch of the dreaded Z-Bomb. The Z-Bomb.
1: <laughs> I'm going to call Clanger on this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's partly because it's so cheesy. Yeah. It's partly because you know they're not going to launch the Z-Bomb. But <laughs> even more so, we saw Ben sabotage it two minutes beforehand where Barclay even says all we need to do is take out this bit and it will look like it's about to launch but at the last moment it will stop (laughs) so you go well I know it's not happening there actually is no tension there's no danger so yeah
0: (laughs) it's a clangor for me I love me a good countdown uh, cliffhanger (laughs) I love them but uh, yeah, you're right. Like we know it's not going to happen, so it's kind of um, a little silly. Yeah, I think they've done it better. We talked
2: a long time ago about the Inferno oh, countdown. Man, that that was is so a good. classic. Yeah. This yeah. one, not so much. Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Part four, then, and we've mentioned it, but it's the Doctor who staggers back aboard the safety of the TARDIS. He's drained. He drops to the floor, apparently dead. But a strange light seems to catch from within and obscures his form. As the regenerative light disperses, we begin to see the Doctor's features blend. And transform into that of another man.
1: I'm getting chills just hearing this <laughs> you That did is, so that well, is Steve. again, we have we have to go above cracker. That is classic as well.
2: It's a moment in television
0: history. You change the lead and it yeah. works. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and like we said, like at the time, I, I'm sure that was would have been mind-blowing, especially for <laughs> kids who have no idea it's crazy. I mean, yeah. You, know, I mean, you just can't wait to get to next week to see what happens. That's that's what a cliffhanger should do. Yeah. And that
1: that's it? the only problem with it, because even now, you go, I need to see what happens yeah. next. <laughs> And it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah
2: we have the animated form, I guess, but it's not the same.
1: It's not the same, particularly because it's a Trouton story, and I think so much of that first yeah. episode of Trouton would have been his performance. So I only say. it was
0: it was airing on ABC iView, that's our streaming service in Australia. Um, mm-hmm. it aired a little while ago, and I caught it for the first time, and the first episode. I noticed that there's just a lot of silence in the first few minutes like there's a lot of gaps between speaking and uh, the characters the animated characters don't do a lot and the whole time I was thinking what are they actually doing on the yeah. screen like and can't you can't know but yeah it did that it definitely lost something and like you say trout a lot of trout and physical so yeah
1: and also I suspect there's a lot of Ben and Polly giving a lot of really yeah. you know bizarre looks like what's going on yeah yeah
0: <laughs> yeah but that's all sadly lost now uh, obviously this is an ultra cracker one of the yeah crackers yeah. <laughs> uh, any, any regeneration is, you know, something that you, you can't miss, and the, 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 they're all different. Uh, there, I don't think there are any real clanger. Oh, this one. one. <laughs> 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 okay, if we're gonna, we're not gonna go with that. No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this one's like you know one of the biggest crackers. Yeah. And the first one, yeah. the first regeneration, it's wonderful.
2: Lovely. Great. All right. So well, we have come to that time
0: now where I guess. We should find out what Bridget thinks. Let's let's uh, let's queue up Bridget and see what she thought.
4: Now it's my turn.
0: All right, you're listening to What Did Bridget Think, with our guest Bridget, and you're about to find out what it's like to be forced to watch a 1965 episode of Doctor Who by an angry American general at gunpoint. Bridget, what did you think of the Tenth Planet?
4: It was dated. It was very, very dated. The sound quality was terrible. I fell asleep in the first episode for 20 minutes.
0: You did fall asleep.
4: I missed the first episode a little bit.
0: Watching it with you, I did realise how bad the sound quality was. Like, uh, like you really had to listen to find out, figure out what people were saying to each other. But
4: it was okay, because everything was crawling around at a sl- snail's pace, narrative-wise, so I could pick it up without really getting all the dialogue.
0: So he had plenty of time to, to uh, really soak up that sort of Ben and Polly character development.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they had to really run the show. What happened to the doctor? He just kind of keeled over halfway and was like, I'm going to have a little nap. For the whole episode,
0: (laughs) yeah, he just—he apparently he just informed informed the producers that he was too ill to do that episode, and they uh, just wrote around it. But like, apparently they'd made provisions for that because he was pretty wobbly at the time, so they kind of they kind of like made preparations in case that happened. So they kind of didn't have he didn't have a lot to do, right? He was
4: like diplomat at the end. He was like a diplomat, so he kind of like peace talked his way into it. Into like saving the world and stuff at the end. But then he just randomly dies. Like, I still don't really understand why. But
0: well, yeah, like, whenever the American general was being too American, it was his job to just like grab his lapels and be British, <laughs> which is great. <gasps> yeah, it's really the first time. Well, it's, this is the first regeneration episode ever, right? It's really the first and only time the doctor regenerates because he's a bit knackered.
4: Yeah, he just, this is just like, ah, I can't be bothered. This with body's this. a bit
0: worn out. I'm feeling a bit knackered.
4: <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, that definitely feels like that.
0: Yeah, he's old, man.
4: Yes, he is. Well, what did
0: you think of the uh, first ever appearance of the Cybermen? I know you're not a big Cybermen fan. No. But uh, what did you think of the super, <laughs> super. I think super just old because
4: ones? it's like a first regeneration story and the first time the Cybermen appear doesn't mean it's actually good. <sighs> That's what I mean. I mean, entertainment wise. I felt like I'd been transported back to 1965.
0: So you don't think it should be treated with the? Real... I don't
4: think if you should subject your girlfriends to these <laughs> four episodes if you want her to watch Doctor Who. But at the same time, you, you know it's historical. I liked it. What did you think of just t- chump, what, what did you
0: think of those submen?
4: Oh, they were they were what is with those why why well who was like
0: cut some <laughs> holes in a sock
4: who was like in the room i know let's make them talk like this like what the hell like
0: what's wrong with talking super weird
4: Wrong with it was like it was hilarious it did it make it did not instill fear in into me at all
0: oh maybe if it was 1965
4: and you you know you'd... yeah maybe if i was asleep And I just heard it. If you're asleep, my subconscious, like if the Cybermen crawled into my subconscious through the power of that really annoying whiny noise, maybe that would annoy me. Yes, I don't know. It's all good. I don't want to diss your show. So you
0: found them annoying?
4: They were pretty dumb.
0: They did get killed a lot. I like
4: the way at the end they were like, ah, oh, they don't like radiation, so let's just pick up this bar of radiation with our hands <laughs> yeah, and just throw it at them and wave it at them. <laughs> the
0: radioisotope. It's right? like,
4: yeah, sure, you can do that, but then you will slowly die for sixty yeah. <laughs> years. Yeah, you will die really slowly in painfully. They're just holding radioisotopes. It's like, yeah, and just hold it with.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't notice that. Um, like those suits, <laughs> the suits like blocked apparently blocked radioisotope radiation at really close range, but didn't prevent gas from getting into the suit. I know. (laughs) It was terrible.
4: That's really scary. Yeah, it was really (laughs) scary. Hey, look, they
0: they were desperate measures, man. Desperate times require desperate isotope handling. Yeah. Andy, what about the crazy general? Did you did you like... There's always
4: you... a crazy general. Every did... show you make me watch is a crazy general. <laughs> what is this theme? Like, it's, it's like...
0: It's 60s Who, man. It's always a base under siege.
4: But it was 70s Who, and then it was 80s Who, and then it was like...
0: Are there crazy generals in 80s Who? There probably is.
4: Yeah, that one with the bat milk. <laughs> when he had to milk the bat.
0: Shara's Jack?
4: Yeah, there was a crazy general. Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, there was a crazy general there.
0: Yeah, and then there's like... um. Uh, in Fenric, there's like crazy generals in Fenric.
4: Definitely. Yeah, nice, nice. There's so many.
0: Yeah, good, good call. Those or maybe crazy... you're
4: just picking the episodes like, we like, hey, you're new to Who, here's a crazy general.
0: Maybe our podcast is actually just a giant ruse to torture you.
4: That's how I feel sometimes. <laughs> but then when you have so much genuine love for Doctor Who, it kind of throws me, I'm like, no, no, it's not torture.
0: That's why we need, I reckon we need to watch his episodes with Steve because whenever he's there, it lends me, it, it like adds weight to my opinion. <laughs> like you're like, oh, Dan thinks it's great. It's super dumb. But then Steve comes in and he's eloquent and like um, scholarly and yeah. he's, he just makes you see the beauty.
4: He does. He makes you, he definitely he does, does make, make you see, you the, see the, beauty. the beauty. That's his strength. Yeah. We yeah, it's lo- true. We love you, Steve. Where is he now, though? I know, he's insane. Well, I'm slating it. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> boring! You wouldn't, you wouldn't dare. <laughs> oh, my God. You
0: wouldn't dare say this about the 10th planet if Steve was here.
4: Dude, I'm pretty loose tonight. I think I would.
0: It's late. It's very late. I, mean, I made Bridget stay up really late, guys. To,
4: to watch, watch it at the last minute. I was like, okay. It's not that bad for C5. It was. It was kind of shocking, too, when uh, she was like, what can I do to help? And the guy was like... <laughs> Mm, nothing, you're a woman. And she's like, I'll make coffee. And he was like, yes, yes, you should. Oh, I'm sorry. You must be scared. Yeah, literally. sit down and console you.
0: He was like, you must be terrified, poor thing. She's poor like, thing. well, yeah, actually I am.
4: Yeah, actually. And then she's like, weird. Yeah, but she was pretty, she make a good coffee. They did
0: write her quite useless in this episode, didn't they? They didn't treat yeah. Polly very well. Um, and then Ben is on the other end of the spectrum. It's just a complete bozo for the entire, entire show. Yeah, he
4: doesn't get very good lines either. He's I- like ultra masculine All she's right, ultra feminine pull your it's finger like, out the doctor is only supposed to be in the middle it's like this like voice of reason but really he's just like I'm tired I'm not going to be in three of the episodes goodbye and then he wakes up and goes hmm peace negotiation now I think I'll die it was just like what is this <laughs> oh
0: Bridget so ruthless
4: but that's what I, I love when I do
0: like I did love watching with you when Ben got caught dismantling the rocket by the general it's like <laughs> <laughs> <I was laughs> busted like,
4: oh man that would have hurt. Even oh, yeah. for a stunt double man, he just got thrown off that balcony flip backwards. That was yeah. sick. Was actually, good. that was pretty sick. That was
0: pretty good. And what did you think of... I I forgot until we were watching it that the fourth episode is missing and we had to watch an animation episode. What did you think of the animation? Oh,
4: I loved that one. That you, was the highlight. You
0: kind of thought that it was it better was than the actual... You thought yeah. the animation was better than the actual film. Oh,
4: the sound quality cleared up so I could actually follow the story a bit better. <laughs> that was good. I would have liked to have seen the regeneration like in... As it was, like that is available.
0: Somehow, the video of the the regeneration does survive and it does exist. You can watch it.
4: Thanks. Uh Let's rush. Do you want to rush to watch it right now? (laughs) Well, I'm kind of curious to see what the dude looks like, but I've seen him like you know. Trouton. I'm kind of yeah. He's handsome
0: in a sixties way. Yeah, dude. You love a mop top.
4: Yeah, I love skivvy. So.
0: Oh. Oh, Is there a skivvy? Well, there was, Ben was wearing a skivvy the entire episode. You didn't even notice. I did notice.
4: <laughs> I wasn't going to bring it up because I always bring up skivvies. I was like, don't be that girl that just brings up the man in the skivvy all the time. Don't be that stereotype. But I was. I, I did notice. It was a good skivvy. He's a Navy man. He's very handsome.
0: Oh, yeah. He likes to barge his way in and shout and wear a skivvy. It's good. So, Bridget, Tenth Planet, uh, give us your, like, you know a couple of sentences What's your final appraisal and would you recommend it to partners of uh, of doctor who watches possibly people who aren't prepared to watch 60s doctor who what would you be what would your advice be
4: well if you're not prepared to watch 60s doctor who this is 60s doctor who so why would you <laughs> um yeah i don't know i think it's probably the better one of the episodes that you showed me from the 60s
0: you like this better than Inferno? I mean, let's let's go back to Inferno oh, one more time.
4: Let's go back there, please. Let's go back there. So
0: even though you weren't a huge fan of the Trans Planet, you did have nice things to say about parts of it. <laughs> so, let's get down to the nitty. Let's let's get down to the nitty gritty of what what did Bridget think has really become. Was this better than Inferno for you?
4: Yeah, 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 yeah. That is any episode, surely. I was inf- offended by Inferno.
0: I'm not trying to re- always bring it back Literally to Inferno, but it's hurt a-
4: me in my soul. This one was okay. It was just, it was just dated. Cool. It was, it wasn't okay. Story, that you know, dudes sweet. come from outer space. They're a bit useless. I never felt frightened by them. You know, you can talk them round. Bit t- of radiation knocks them dead. I think they're okay.
0: Cool. So final. They just
4: look like crazy sex toys. In the final
0: analysis, crazy sex toys.
4: Yeah, because they're like Wah! <laughs>
0: So final it analysis. So
4: bad. There was one point where I thought I saw actual sticky tape.
0: So final analysis, better than Inferno.
4: Yeah. Is right. yeah. Obviously, there you, there you
0: have it. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening, sweet dogs. <laughs> That's Bridget's final analysis. Uh, and back to you guys in the studio. Bye.
4: Bye.
0: There you have it. Wow, I never really thought about it like that before. <laughs> Bridget, thank you so much for your unique take. Lovely. <laughs>
2: Okay, so Dave, we asked this of every guest, uh, and we've specifically asked you, and you've kindly said yes for a Hartnell story, and the very last Hartnell story, I'm going to ask the question of you, why should we watch this? Why should anyone watch this?
1: I think you should watch it because it's a piece of Doctor Who history, the Sidemen appear, it's the first regeneration. Mm-hmm. You should watch it because it's a really good performance from William Hartnell, mm and it's a good introduction to his character, and then there's so many more you can explore. But I think it is also a piece of 1960s sci-fi, both within Doctor Who and outside of Doctor Who, that really stands up. There's so many concepts and ideas in this Mm. that will radiate forward from from here, and it's wonderful to see them being done in 1966. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to take out of this story. Apart from which... It's a really exciting adventure. Yeah, it's fun as hell. It is really fun. I was getting so into it the other night when I was watching it again, (laughs) particularly part four now that it is animated. Yeah. I was really getting excited by it.
2: That's a perfect summary right there. (laughs) Distilling really all the points that we've raised so far. I think so. Yeah. So, Dave, thank you. Thanks so much. So it's come to that time of the uh, the show again where uh, I guess we're going to be sharing the love. Recommendation for this month. Is on the time lash. Uh, Scottish lads Ben and Mark talk Doctor Who, as the title suggests, over drinks. Catch them on Twitter at on the time lash. Uh,
0: next time,
2: Dan, what is it going to be?
0: Oh man, this is, well, this one's like a well, it's consistently voted as a r- r- way high up in the uh, fan favorites. So and it's I think like- last time actually topped it. Yeah, maybe it's the Caves of Androzani. That's uh, we're going from a regeneration story to a regeneration story. Yes, we are. It's Peter Davison, the Fifth Doctor's final story, and it, it stands apart from a lot of his work. Because it's pretty, mm-hmm. it's quite, it's pretty dark. It can be quite messed up, but it's also pretty amazing. It, it's one of the absolute classics of Doctor mm. Who, and I can't wait to talk about it next time. It's one of the best regenerations and one of the best regeneration stories yeah. that there is. Uh, yeah, and it's one of Davison's best. So I can't wait to do that one. Lovely.
2: Next time. Okay, so. We- Comes now to for us to, to say thank you and, and farewell to our guest. Dave, you've been absolutely wonderful guiding us through the Hartnell years as well as the 10th planet. Yeah, I just doing, want to say thank you. Doing double duty for us. Yeah, That's so yeah. Much. <laughs> no,
1: I really appreciate it. I have had a lot of fun having this conversation.
2: <laughs> and could you tell us maybe where we can find you on Twitter or, or the podcast that you're doing at the moment?
1: Uh, yeah, so look, I'll plug the podcast that I'm involved with. Yep. I'm mm-hmm. the co host of The Doctor Who Show. And we have a monthly flagship episode as well as a whole lot of other things that go on on our feed in the meantime. And I do that with my uh, my friend Rob, who has been on your show already.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> uh, but outside of Doctor Who, I also put together the... Goodies Pirate Podcast with my friend Richard. So, if you're a fan of the Goodies and if you grew up in Australia watching Doctor Who, you're I think you probably be would be. Yes. Uh, by this, we 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 went through every episode of the Goodies, one episode at a time, and went back. We reassessed them, talked about what worked, what didn't. Uh, one of my favourite segments was uh, what they couldn't get away with today, where <laughs> <laughs> we had some pretty honest conversations. Oh, yeah. So that that's out there. But uh, the other current project that is now about a season in is a podcast called Spacefall a Blake 7 podcast where Richard and I are going through every episode of Blake 7 in its 40th anniversary Mm. and again just talking about what we love the references what works what doesn't work so yeah there's a bit of material out there if you search for the Doctor Who show the Goodies Pirate podcast or Spacefall a Blake 7 podcast on Facebook or on Twitter or on iTunes you'll find all of those
2: perfect fantastic thank you very much we look forward to that
1: You can buy the DVD of The Tenth Planet from BBC Online, or buy and download the episodes from iTunes. You
2: can follow New on Twitter at Podcast, and also on Facebook, or even email us at podcast at gmail.com.
0: You can find all our episodes at NewToWho.com, or on iTunes, or, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel like you want to click subscribe or leave a review for us, it helps people notice us and helps get us out there into podcast world, so that would be wonderful.
1: We hate goodbyes. So until next time, I'm Dave. I'm
2: Stephen.
0: And I'm Dan.
1: All right.